Exodus chapter 10, we're following the story of God liberating His people to worship Him, to flourish as He intended them to flourish, and finding again, as because of Jesus, that this story is our story. This is the story of God's work uh, on our behalf uh, if we belong to Jesus. And last week, uh, Todd Velliber was here, and he started us in the plagues, and we're going to return to the plagues, and we're going to read the end of the plagues uh, this morning. And so Exodus chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading in verse 21, and I will read through chapter 11, a little bit more of an extended reading, so, so bear with me. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what we must serve the Lord until we arrived there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one, more, one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses says, said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now as we come to these strong words 
uh, this story of your judgment, would you produce in us humility to receive what you desire to communicate to us here? Would you give us clarity to understand how you speak to us? And would you empower us by your Spirit not only to understand, but to apply what we hear to our lives? That ultimately is your work, and we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Stanley Kubrick, great American film director, in an interview in the late 60s, uh, he said, the most terrifying thing about our universe, the most terrifying thing about our universe is not that it is hostile. It is that it is indifferent. The most terrifying thing about our universe is that it is indifferent. Do you feel that way sometimes? Do you have that sense sometimes that life is this odd, confusing, random mix of good and bad, uh, tragic and beautiful, and the world seems to shrug its shoulders in apathy and stay silent on the question of meaning? You feel that way sometimes? I mean, this past week, Tuesday, we thought Tallahassee was going to be buffeted into non-existence by apocalyptic weather. And the rest of the week, gorgeous. Right? Well, I wonder if the generations of Israelites who lived and died under the oppressive empire of Egypt, I wonder if they would have resonated with Kubrick's view of the universe. I wonder if they would have looked around and thought, it doesn't seem to matter. No one cares. The universe seems indifferent to our plight. Well, the plagues in Exodus chapters 7 to 11, completely dismantle that view. Because what we find in these chapters is a universe that is anything but indifferent. And the universe is not indifferent here because God is not indifferent. God is not Switzerland. He is not a passive, neutral observer. He is passionately involved. He fights. God, as he is revealed in the plagues, is a warrior. And while he may not always work in ways as dramatic as this, his character has not changed. God's character has not changed. He is not indifferent. He is a passionate warrior. And I want us to ask a couple of questions about that. I want to ask a couple of questions about the divine warrior as we consider the plagues and especially the last of the the last two of the ten plagues. Two questions. What does God fight against? And what does he fight for? What does the divine warrior oppose and what does he support? First of all, what does God fight against? Well, if you've been with us and paying attention in the book of Exodus, God fights against Pharaoh. 
He fights against Pharaoh's hard heart. And as Todd Veliver showed you last week, God fights against the false gods of Egypt. But there's more. And we can see this more in the method of God's war. We can see it in how he fights. So notice in particular the imagery of these last two plagues. The ninth plague, darkness. A darkness that, uh, chapter 10, verse 21 tells us, a darkness that can be felt. It is so deep. And it descends on the land of Egypt for three days. Why darkness? Why in the penultimate plague, darkness? Well, connecting to the theme from last week, in the Egyptian pantheon of gods, the chief god was Ra, the sun god. And so part of the reason for darkness is God, the true Lord, saying, no, I'm the one who rules over the sun. But there's more. There's another reason for darkness. And to know that reason, we need to remember how the Bible begins. The Bible begins with God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and what? Darkness hung over the deep. And what is God's first act of ordering his creation, bringing life and order and peace to his creation. Let there be light. So notice God fights against Egypt by reversing the order of creation. He fights against Egypt by turning creation against Pharaoh and his people. And this is not just in the ninth plague, it's through all of the plagues. Everything in the plagues is out of bounds, right? Pests are where they shouldn't be. Livestock just begin to die. There are chaotic weather patterns. A a massive skin disease epidemic breaks out. The world for the Egyptians is falling apart. Creation is disintegrating and descending back into chaos. The ultimate expression of that, chaotic darkness. But why? Why does God fight in this way? Well, notice the tenth plague. God says in chapter 11, verse 4, He says, I'm coming into Egypt and all the firstborns of Egypt will die. Now, Connect that to creation as well. How does creation begin? God saying, let there be light. How does his work of creation end? He makes Adam and Eve in his image, in his likeness. He makes them as his firstborn, who represent his purposes on the wor- in the world. And he says to them what? How does he bless them? How does he give them life? He says to them, multiply. Remember, God then renews that blessing to Abraham and to Abraham's family. And what's the situation at the beginning of the book of Exodus? Pharaoh is violently attacking the multiplication of God's people. And God in chapter 4 calls his people his firstborn son. So God is saying, you have come against my firstborn. So I will come against your firstborn. The point is that God 
opposes Pharaoh and his empire with creation because Pharaoh and his empire have opposed God's purposes for creation. God's purpose for creation is for humanity, his images, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to have dominion. And Pharaoh and his empire have stood against that purpose. And so God says, if you will stand and oppose my order, then I will turn my order against you. I will turn the structure of creation against you because you have opposed my purpose for creation. God's intention in Israel is to renew blessing and life. And so he resists the resistance to that intention. And notice, in the end, what God resists is Pharaoh's own self-destructive impulses. He resists Pharaoh harming creation, harming his own people, harming God's intention for the world. God stands against the self-destructive tendencies of humanity. This is very important for us to keep in mind as we think about judgment. Because that's what the plagues are, right? These are stories of God judging people. And that's not a pleasant topic. I don't relish the opportunity to talk about God coming in harsh, wrathful judgment. And I understand that makes a lot of people skittish of the Christian faith, this element of what the Christian faith teaches. But if we're going to be honest with the Bible, if we're going to be honest with the tradition of Christianity... We have to talk about judgment. And whether you admit it or not, in the end, we all want judgment. We long for judgment. We might disagree about methods, and we might disagree about standards for how it should be done, but we long for judgment. You can hear it in our stories and in our songs. I've been listening uh, to the album by Jason Isbell. It's a singer-songwriter album that came out last year. And there's a song, uh, the album title is Southeast, and there's a song on that album called Yvette. And it is sung from the perspective of a teenage boy who sees a situation of abuse. And he sings this. He says, I might not be a man yet, but your father will never be. And so I load up my Weatherby. Weatherby, if you don't know, is a, is a type of firearm. Where does that come from? It comes up from our ache for judgment. We see wrongs in the world and we long for them to be made right. And the plagues in all of Scripture speak to that desire and they say there is a judge. God is the judge. He is the standard. He is the method of how justice will be established. And God is absolutely committed. God is absolutely committed to righting the wrongs. 
that have emerged from our rejection of his design. God is absolutely committed to opposing the self-destructive tendencies of humanity. He is absolutely committed to opposing your sinful, self-destructive tendencies. This is not the last time in the Bible that these images and, and the language of the plagues are used. It echoes throughout Scripture, even to the book of Revelation. That speaks of God coming in the future in final judgment. And it sounds a lot like the plagues of Egypt. God taking in response to our opposition to his purposes for creation, taking creation and disintegrating it into chaos, into darkness. And if we resist him, if we continue in our resistance to God and his purposes, he will give us what we want. He will indulge our self-destructive tendencies. If you want darkness, God in the end will give it to you. Now, I, I know that's heavy. I know that's harsh. The message of Christianity is the message of the Bible. But the message of judgment always comes with an unless. Unless. God will do this unless you repent. God's judgment comes on the sinful, self-destructive tendencies of humanity unless we turn to Him, seeking forgiveness, asking for help. God will judge us unless we own our sin in honesty and turn in hope to Him for forgiveness. And so the response to the message of judgment is not to go like you went, right? No, the response to the message of judgment is to open ourselves to God's confrontation, realizing that when He confronts us, He is confronting our tendency towards self-destruction, our tendency to harm His creation, and He is calling us out of that darkness. So our response should be to open ourselves to that. It is to come to Him with honesty and hope. And the good news is that in God's work of judgment, He not only says no, he also says yes. God not only says no, He also says yes. You see, the divine warrior not only fights against, He also fights for. So second question. What does God support? What does the divine warrior fight for? Well, repeated throughout chapters 7 to 11... God states a goal. And he says it again and again. He says, the reason I'm doing all of this is so that you will know. It's the goal of knowledge. He says, I want you to know. I want Israel to know. I want Egypt to know. I want the whole world, all the earth to know that I am the Lord. 
All right? That's last week. But again, there's more. There's another piece of knowledge. There's another element of the curriculum in the plagues. Chapter 11, verse 7. God is saying it's through Moses, here's how all this is going to go down. You're going to leave Egypt. They're going to look on you with favor. They're going to throw all their riches at you. And as you walk out, not even a dog will growl against you. Why? Chapter 11, verse 7, why? So that you may know that God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God fights to distinguish His people. He fights to create separation, difference for His people. And we see this in the plagues. It's repeated all throughout. A bad event will happen in the land of Egypt, except for the little piece of the land where the Israelites live, right? You see that in the the plague of darkness? Darkness descends. Creation disintegrates for the Egyptians. And their firstborns die. But Israel is in the light. And their firstborns die. Live. You see, God's ultimate goal is not to impose darkness. His ultimate goal is to renew light in and through His people. He wants to restore through Israel humanity as His firstborn, representing His purposes in all of creation, and to say through them once again, let there be light. It's the goal ultimately not of the disintegration of creation, but it's the goal ultimately of a new creation. But who gets to be a part of that? Who gets to be the who gets the benefit of what God is fighting for? In other words, who lives the, who lives in the light? Now it seems obvious as we read this text that. It's an ethnic distinction, right? It's Egypt, Israel. That's the distinction between dark and light. But it's more complicated than that. There's a couple of complications with that view that this distinction is one of ethnicity. First complication is that as Israel leaves Egypt, being rescued by God, some Egyptians go with them. And these Egyptians, their males are circumcised, and they become full members of the people of God. Israel is not some pure ethnic group. Remember, Moses marries a non-Israelite. That's part of an overarching theme in the Old Testament of people who don't belong to the nation of Israel coming into God's covenant with His people, becoming a part of God's people, and benefiting of God's promises to His people. Second complication with the view that this is about ethnicity. It's a more serious complication. If you follow the storyline of the Old Testament, you'll hear the language and images of the plagues increasingly applied against Israel, not for her. As God's people harden themselves against God and turn to other gods, God comes against them with the plagues. For instance, in the book of Joel, 
prophet, little, little, little prophetic book in the Old Testament, the prophet says because of Israel's sin, because of their idolatry, God comes against them with the eighth and ninth plagues. God comes against them with locusts and with darkness. So that when you get to the end of the Old Testament, the question of who's in the light, who gets the benefits of what God is fighting for, that question has intensified to the point of crisis, of maybe no one gets to be in the light. Maybe creation will just disintegrate back into chaos and there will be only darkness. So it shouldn't surprise us then that when Jesus is born, a unique light appears in the night sky. When Jesus is presented at the temple as a baby, Simeon sings in response, My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, a light to the Gentiles. As Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew quotes from Isaiah and says, Those who have walked in darkness have seen a great Light. Jesus calls himself in the Gospel of John the light of the world. And he says to his people, to his disciples, you, because of me, are the light of the world. And as Jesus' life and ministry leads him to the cross, as he hangs on the cross, what happens? Darkness. For three hours. Interesting little connect, number connection to the plague story. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the light goes out. It is dark. And in that darkness, the only begotten Son of the Father suffers and dies. And then the divine warrior defeats even death. And the light of Easter Sunday morning dawns. In the resurrection of Jesus, the beginning of a new creation. You see, God pours out on His only Son. He pours out on Him the plagues. He pours out Him on the, the plagues of darkness and death. Why? Because we deserve the plagues, but Jesus stands in our place. God pours out on Him the plagues of darkness and death, but then raises Him from the dead. Why? So that we can become the children of light which is what 1 John calls us. Who's in the light? Those who are in Jesus. Who's in the light is those who believe and follow Jesus. They belong to the light of God's new creation. Maybe the universe seems indifferent to you, but Jesus is the ultimate sign that God is not indifferent. He is a warrior and he fights. 
He fights so that he can speak into the darkness of your life and into the darkness of our world. He can speak and say, let there be light. God fights to distinguish you. He fights through his son, Jesus, to distinguish you as a part of his new creation. He fights through His Son, Jesus, to say about you, you are chosen, you are holy, you are precious, you are my treasure. God fights through His Son, Jesus, to say that about you. So, why do we spend so much anxiety on trying to distinguish ourselves. If God through His Son Jesus has distinguished us as new creation, my people, light of the world, why do we live with so much fear about attempting to distinguish ourselves? Mark Schaffman is a professor at Villanova. He wrote an article, it came out this week, that says that that fear, the fear of distinguishing ourselves, is the dominant fear of his students' lives. They live in the fear that their achievements will never be enough. And then I think he makes a very interesting connection then to the Hunger Games. He says, this is why we connect to those stories. Because even in all of our affluence, we still sense that we have to fight for our survival by distinguishing ourselves through achievement. We connect to those stories because we live with the fear that what we do will never be enough. Always fighting for that competitive advantage. The gospel tells a better story. The gospel tells a better story. You don't have to fight to distinguish yourself. There is one who fights for you. There is one who lived and died and rose from the dead to say about you, you are the light of the world. You are my new creation people You belong to me. You are chosen and precious. You don't have to fight to distinguish yourself. I've already fought for you. And I will win. I will complete that battle. So yes, to the message of judgment, we should repent. But as we repent, we don't turn from sin to effort. We don't turn from sin to, I need to fight harder. I need to try harder. When we repent, we turn from sin, not to our effort, but to Christ's effort on our behalf. We turn to what He has done for us, bearing God's judgment so that we could benefit from God's blessing. Stanley Kubrick's 
response to his to the perceived indifference of the universe. His response to that was to say, however vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. That's more terrifying to me than an indifferent universe. Even a superficial knowledge of human history would, should frighten us at the prospect of us trying to supply our own light in the vastness of the darkness. But because of what Jesus has done, and because of what Jesus will do, we don't have to supply our own light. Our response to the vast darkness of this world is to live by faith in the one who is the true light of the world. Let's pray.